0: this was mine, right? Sam, was this yours? (laughs) I picked it up by your feet. I'm like, this is mine. I don't know where it went, so it must be. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys, and good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, so if you're visiting today, um, welcome, and that's who I am, and we are, as Peter said, in a series right now in Genesis, which is the first book of the Old Testament, first book of the Bible that we've been in for a few months, and will take us through, um, at this point, the plan is early December, so it's a 50-chapter a book, if you didn't know, uh, full of a lot of uh, narrative, a uh, biblical narrative on a whole slew of things. We're just starting to crack into it um, as a church, a lot more to go, but um, a lot of great stories that you may, even if you don't, if you don't know much about the Bible, you may be aware that, the, that these stories are in the Bible. I think I said that the first Sunday we, we cracked open Genesis, is this is a, a book that is, um, people know a lot about, but then don't know really a lot about, because you know I even asked my uh, community group last week. Uh, how many times or how often people have read this story when the last time was and they read this story about uh, Noah and the ark and the flood and uh, some people said it's been years and that's just common. We don't read like every part of the Bible all the time. So, um, so Peter mentioned that some of you may be very familiar with this like going back into childhood if you were raised in the church but we never assume that's the case. In fact uh, some of you may be brand new to the faith or you're not a Christian yet and we are just really glad you're here. We don't want to assume that and we'll explain things as we go uh, but don't feel like you're on the outside if that's the case for you. It's uh, that's very normal. So, um, so we are right now in uh, Genesis 8, 20 uh, through 9, chapter 9, verse 17. As uh, today's section, which is the section, kind of a part two to last week. We looked at Noah and the ark and the flood. And uh, today's a part two of when he comes off the ark and this initial interaction he has with God. What God says to him, how they, how they uh, interact, and what that tells us ultimately about God's character in the gospel and, and, uh, and all that. So, but if you haven't been here, if this is the first time you're here, and uh, Genesis, you know, alone or the story is brand new to you. The brief, I mean, very short, this is talk about Cliff Notes version here, but uh, of the story so far is that God made everything in the earth and human beings were the pinnacle of his creation, made in his image. They rebel. And at that point, uh, there's, there's punishment and consequence for sin. But God is, and if you've been here for the series so far, I, I hope that you got a glimpse of this. And I hope you'll see more of this today and in incoming uh, passages. But God is the most patient being in the universe by far. God is the most patient being in the universe. He's the kindest being in the universe and he's the most patient being. And you could plug in a lot of verbs or uh, words there in terms of him being the, the best expression of these ideas. But patience is certainly one of them that, come, that has come up uh, already in this book um, a lot. Uh, the Bible says elsewhere that he's slow to anger Isn't that amazing news? Alone. (laughs) When you're stuck in the throes of sin, when you feel far from him, when you question if you're saved, know that. Among other things, just know that about God's character. The Bible says, God says about himself. He's slow to anger, but he's fast to show love. He's quick to show love. And so there's a call for Christians to live similarly, but before that, he just says, this is who I am. This is how I move towards the world. This is how I write history into existence. This is how I respond to evils. This is how I respond with, with judgment and justice, but also with, um, with tons of love and mercy and patience at, at, the, at the same time. So, so we talked last week how it's, it's, it's a, both a good news and a bad news thing that God is full of wrath uh, towards sinners. And so that's how the story progresses. As people are continuing to rebel against God, God eventually sends a worldwide flood to wipe out all life except a lot of uh, marine animals and Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, so eight people, and, all, and a bunch of animals, land-dwelling animals on the ark as well. They came in, uh, in pairs, male and female, to repopulate the earth afterwards. So, but basically everything everything dies. He's grieved uh, and he, he wipes out all life. So his patience eventually runs out and God executes justice upon those who sin against him. So the idea was God is patient the most patient being in the universe, and yet his patience doesn't last forever. And that's actually a really good thing. We talked about this last week. If you have ever wanted to see justice in the world, if you've ever wanted the bad guy to get it in a story and a feeling of resolution came over your heart and mind when you saw that happen, or any kind of thing that's not resolved, get resolved. On any level, if you've ever felt that in your, in your life, you, you are in God's image and you're catching a glimpse of his heart, that God actually does war against evil. This is a good, good thing. He's not passively just saying, uh, you know, it's not my problem. He, he, he hates it, and that's a good thing. The bad news side comes in when we realize that we are, we are kind of the harbingers of injustice. injustice. That the, the evil is wrapped around our DNA. It comes from our heart. Ephesians 2 says we're not just doing evil, but we're born into it. So we're actually, we're actually sinners from birth. That comes up today, too. In today's passage, from our youth, our desires are evil continually. Actually, last week's passage as well, but it just keeps coming up how we are prone to evil. God's common grace is upon us. Obviously, some good can come from us, but that's the Lord. And things aren't as bad as they could be, but in terms of who we are, uh, that we are not seekers of God, we're not doers of good ultimately uh, from. And so, that's the bad news. It's good news that God is like this, that he has wrath against sin. The bad news is we are sinners <laughs> in justice, um, and God's patience won't last for, um forever so thankfully then as we've been seeing in the story as the bible says many places god is not just full of wrath against sin he is full of patience as we've been saying he's full of love he's full of mercy he shows forgiveness to people who don't deserve it constantly in the scriptures so that if we're not in the story directly and none of us are we are by extension we're human beings who are also being shown grace in in the same fashion so we can at least say could that happen to me? Could, could God spare me as well? Could he show me patience? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, he can and yes, he does through his, through his son. So that's the, that's the thankfully uh, part of it. And so how these two things come together, God being wrathful against sin but incredibly eternally patient for his people is the story of the Bible. Understanding those two aspects of God and how they come together is the story of the Bible. It explains the tensions, the surprises, the battles and the horrors and the unanswered questions, but it also explains the great displays of mercy and love and the resolutions to the story and the answers to the questions, the patience that God shows. It explains both all together as they find their finish line in Christ and the cross. And so we'll see that yet again uh, today. So let's read uh, Genesis eight twenty to 9, 7, the first, uh, I guess, half to two-thirds of this to begin. I'll set up the latter part, which is the more important part today, but let's just read this and make a few comments. Uh, chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. "...upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning, from every beast I will require it, and from, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for... God made man in His own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply; increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. All right. So a few observations here. Um, that uh, you know, first of all, you can just see how much God wants people to have babies. I just realized that reading this for the second time this morning. God just keeps repeating that: be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So uh, that's great. But anyway, a few other things. Uh, that he says here. And I'll I'll make some theological commentary along the way, but this is, again, mostly a setup to the next section, which I think this climaxes in. It's building towards it, so I'll go through this a little quicker. Uh, But first, going back to verse 20 in chapter 8, right after Noah gets off the ark, and uh, if you weren't here last week or didn't know this, he spent about a year on the ark, a little under a year, which, you know, if, if there was ever a you know, kiss the ground kind of moment. I think that would be it. You know, after a year in a flood, which, you know, wouldn't have been a Caribbean cruise, it would have been, I mean, I hope they weren't prone to seasickness. I don't think Dramamine was around that day, but oh my gosh. So, but anyway, a year in the dark, the moistness around stinky animals, uh, you know, um, in the turbulent seas, um, to finally get off. God calls them off. The first thing Noah does is, maybe you might expect, maybe you don't, but maybe you might expect, it's certainly the most appropriate thing to do, and that is worship God. He worships. Uh, And and this begins, it's a a common motif in the Bible, this idea of God saving people through water and then those people worshiping. Uh, It's a common motif. We see it next, at least in the big picture sense, when Israel later in the story crosses the Red Sea when they escape from Egypt, Egyptian slavery. Uh, God parts the waters and they pass through on, on dry land. Actually, same word dry land is used for Noah and his family as it is for Israel later. But again, they passed through water, as they, Israel did, as they were being saved. And after that, in Exodus 15, the first thing they do is they look back on the waters that closed over their enemies, the Egyptians who were chasing them through the waters. They look back and they saw the salvation of God, and they sung. They sang what's called the Song of Moses. They, they sang a new song to the Lord and, and worshiped him. It's also akin, much later in the story, to in this New Testament era we're in, to a Christian being baptized. And when a Christian is, when a person's saved from their sins, they believe the gospel and they're baptized, they also pass through water in a very theologically connected way to what Noah's doing and what Israel does uh, as the New Testament links those two things in many places. But it's, it's akin to that, to a baptized Christian worshiping kind of during but after uh, his or her baptism. So the, the flood event then starts a series of God saving people through water, then they worship stories. In the Bible and there's a couple of other ones I mentioned but there we could look at other ones there as well this this begins the the motif God has a pattern of doing this water and salvation through water is just a way God likes to work and it's appropriate then going back to Noah in terms of worship it's appropriate for God to worship of course because really simply God has done something amazing here he's lovingly graciously as we said last week not based on Noah being a good person but being a God person one who had faith in him He saved him. Uh, So it's very appropriate to worship as response. If if Noah saved himself, worship would be inappropriate. Or he would be doing it for the wrong reasons. If Noah felt like he deserved the salvation from God, worship would be inappropriate. Or he'd do it for the the wrong reasons. Worship that God accepts from a faith-filled heart means that God's grace was shown. It, it always does. You could actually do the theological math there, kind of reverse it, not to mix metaphors, but reverse engineer that thing and say, if, if a person's worshiping in the right manner, it means they really understand grace. Like Noah's doing here. God is accepting his his worship because he's, he's worshiping from a, God, you've done something amazing spot. I, I, I'm trusting in you. God, as you've saved me here through this flood, continue to save me. It's a, it's a worshipful heart and God accepted it as a as a pleasing aroma. And so the flip is true then as well. Uh, if we, and I know you got, I do this. This is a regular seasonal thing for me. It's true for every Christian. But when you're in that spot of not worshiping, if this formula, theological formula is true, then it means, among other things, that we're not resting in grace. We're not impacted by the fact that we've come through a, a worldwide flood, essentially, spiritually speaking. And God has saved us by his amazing grace. If that's not impacting, it won't, then it won't lead to To worship like it's doing for for noah here so but just note worship for noah was response we don't see noah worshiping though he may have but it's not written down this way as though worship kind of coerced god into saving him or it was uh, something that manipulated god twisted his arm a religious exercise that said i heard a flood's coming i better worship and sacrifice some animals so god is appeased with me pleased with me and my sin is appeased, and so that he'll, then he'll save me. That chronology is very important uh, for the scriptures. Uh, Paul in the New Testament makes chrono- arguments from chronology all the time. Uh, it's not always the case, but a lot of times it is, and here's one of those places. Worship is response. It's not to elicit salvation, to twist God's arm into it, but it is to respond to what God does graciously. It's, 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 it's true all throughout the scriptures, and here's one of these first early examples of it in the Old Testament before and then now after the flood. All right, so then God speaks. Uh, it's interesting, right away he uh, he says, he promises to never again curse the ground or strike down man with a flood, which, uh, and if you are new to this story again, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and all of humanity with them, part of the punishment, the consequence was the ground would be cursed. And so God's already starting in kind of an early way to lift the curse and it's confusing as to why. It doesn't make a lot of sense but he's graciously doing it. But even here, specifically to say I'm never going to bring a flood again, it it gives us a glimpse into his patient grace but especially when you see his reason. Maybe you saw this when I was reading but especially when you see this in number two. I'll never again curse the ground or I'll begin to lift the curse and I'll never again send a flood uh, because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Is that interesting? If you covered up that second line with your hand and you didn't know what it said, you might be inclined to think that God promised never bring a flood because Noah and his family were a better version of humanity. It doesn't say that though, right? It says It's almost like God saying, well, they can't help it. I'd be bringing floods every day if it was based on what they were what what man was doing before me. Every single day I do this. And so it's like God almost has that type of posture towards everything. But what it it at least tells us is that God is not promising to restrain His wrath because post-flood people will be a better version of humanity. Now, the the, the answer as to why He's doing it, it it begs the question, right? Well, then why? Why is He doing this? Uh, The answer as to why... He's beginning to lift the curse and promises no more catastrophic flooding. It gets flushed out more a bit as we keep reading, but we have to see here before we keep going that it's not the answer is not based on human beings' inherent goodness. We cannot affirm that from this passage. God's not saying it. I will not bring a flood, again, because people can't stop sinning, not because they're great. So it's still confusing. If we don't know, if if we're reading the Bible cover to cover, it would be a little bit confusing and almost kind of unfair in a good way. I mean, we might say, well, that's good. I'm glad God leans that way, but why? There's still a a question. We'll we'll come to that a little bit later on. All right, a few more comments here on this passage. Then God does some things for Noah. He did for Adam and Eve earlier in Genesis. Remember, he's kind of recreating the world here. So Noah's a new type of Adam. He's bringing newness. He's starting to create the world Afresh again, like there was just water in the beginning, and God made land out of it, the waters now are receding, and land kind of pops up again, and he's bringing life from the ark into the new Earth. Uh, so it's kind of a recreation story. So it makes sense he would do some things for Noah that he did for Adam and Eve earlier. So he, he blesses Noah and his sons. He, he commands him and them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, like Adam and Eve before them. But then, he does something additional. He grants them animals to eat. Uh, not just plants. It seems like this this is a little bit unclear in terms of chronology. It seems like this is the first time God is saying, now it's okay to eat animals. We don't know for sure if that's the case. This might just be a heightened thing because sacrifice was happening before the flood and it's likely that people ate the animals that they sacrificed, but we don't know that for sure. It might not be the case, but regardless, there's a heightened kind of invitation to eat any any animal now is food. It's it's a further gift to them in addition to the plants that he gave earlier uh, to humanity. So, but he does ask here, and this is the kind of weird particular thing, he asks qualification. He asks that animals not be eaten with their life, and Moses qualifies this, that is their blood in it. Uh, Their blood needs to be drained. The The preparation for an animal being eaten needs to be careful and respectful. So, it's at least, it's kind of weird what's going on here. We don't know exactly uh, the reason other than to say more broadly, we know it's a respect to the life of the animal. And I think it's, again, it's, it's a specific call to abstain from animal cruelty. I think we can say that too. It's a biblical value uh, that Christians, well, the people of God should and have um, in general always exhibited. Uh, but verse 5 helps here. I think we know it's a respect of life issue because in verse 5, he links it with human beings, kind of saying, you know, respect animals as you respect the life of human beings. So it's kind of a relationality there, uh, maybe, uh, as, you, as you might expect. But So as an expression then of the seriousness of sin, of, of murder, and not respecting life, he says in verse 5, And for your life blood I will require a reckoning, from every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man it will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then verse 6 here and uh, number 4, this is the key. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so I want to uh, just acknowledge that this is, there's a value of life here kind of basically going on. But also just to sit here for a second. This is something that comes up a little bit later when God gives particular laws to Israel later in the story, uh, and so it's kind of heightened there a little bit. And actually, in the New Testament, too, in Acts 15, super, I wish I could just go there and talk about that, but no time. So it does come up a lot. So to understand that there's a a general value of of life here, but also to understand in the context uh, that when he goes further than just saying value life, he says there's a little bit more of a tit-for-tat, if you kill, you will be killed idea. A reckoning he uses the word reckoning there will be a reckoning for for murderers and I think you'd expand out to say any types of, of sin that that will come back um, come back upon you now so on one level that that may make sense to you I don't know it's it's hard to know what, what we're going to immediately feel and I don't know what you guys feel when you read that uh, there's some good news there and some bad I mean once I'm, I'm, if you're a murderer I guess that's really bad but Jesus says we all murder people in our minds all, every day and we hate them, so that's really bad then. But, um, but on one level, this follows closely with what you might expect. I'll just say it that way. Like, if, if we're thinking, what, what makes sense here? If murder occurs like it did earlier in the story, I mean, what, what makes sense? Judgment, punishment that ensued after the fall to sin, Adam and Eve and all that, and you know, this makes sense. And, and we might say, like we did before, it's right for God to be just, that's actually a good characteristic of God, uh, being being just. So he might say that initially, but on the other on the other hand, it's inconsistent with how God worked earlier in the story with Cain, in chapter four. So I want to remind you of this if you were here, if you weren't, to show you that what God's saying here about a reckoning for murderers, He didn't apply Himself earlier in chapter four. Should be attention that we'll resolve later. But in chapter 4, so Genesis 9 says that, we just read that, Genesis 4 says, so Cain and Abel, their first two brothers, or sons, uh, they're brothers, but sons of Adam and Eve, and Cain is jealous of Abel for a variety of reasons. He kills him. And Cain is crushed by his sin. Uh, he's led to fear. He, he actually interacts with God and says this to God. I shall be a fugitive. God says, he, pu- there's some punishment there and some, this is going to happen now because of your sin, but Cain says, I shall be a fugitive in a wanderer on the earth, and here's, here's the tit-for-tat idea. Whoever finds me will kill me. I killed Abel, now whoever finds me will, will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Strange story, Right? doesn't make a lot of sense in light of Genesis 9. And maybe in terms of common sense, what is he doing, God? He just murdered his brother. <laughs> he actually has a murderer's back. He says, if people threaten you, they deal with me. It's an amazing display of intimacy and grace that doesn't make a lot of worldly sense necessarily, but he's demonstrated nonetheless. He's, I'll put a mark on your forehead so people see that they know that they are marked protected by the God of the universe point, though, is do you see the contrast? God's not keeping his own commandment here. God's not keeping with what he said humans should do or what will happen to humans. God's breaking the pattern. There's an interruption here that is resolved uh, a little bit later on, but and we'll talk some about that today. But basically what we're seeing here, if, you, if you've been here for the first part of the series, you've seen this. Basically what we're seeing yet again is this constant contrast between god punishing sin and sinners but showing unexpected grace to sinners right alongside of it and it's this constant tennis match you know like you're watching a like sin grace sin grace punishment grace back and forth it don't make a lot of sense necessarily especially the latter as to why he would do this but he does like what do you do with this tension how do we resolve this theologically we expect one thing and don't expect the other. Uh, we're seeing blessing. We're seeing food even being given to Noah in chapter 8 and 9. We're seeing a demonstration of patience to evil, evil people. And yet we're seeing a tit-for-tat, if people murder, they will be murdered type thing as well that, uh, that's bypassed. So with the grace idea in mind, we'll, we'll talk about that and, um, and how Christ resolves this tension, how Jesus himself, how God moves through his son later it, it blows at the fog of confusion away from this, and it, and it helps resolve, I'll mention that. But for now, let's, let's look at more grace, how it's kind of, you know, God's like a big dump truck here, backing up to Noah and just dumping on him with all this grace, uh, with how he speaks to him in the subsequent section. So, let's read that now. Uh, verses 8 to 17 in chapter 9. Verse 8. So after all that, it switches gears. Then, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. All right. So as we continue here then in terms of God and Noah's interactions, after God is doing the last sections type things like commanding Noah to make babies and with his wives and, and to respect life and not kill anyone and to not eat anything with his lifeblood in it, he switches gears in verse 8 with that Connection word then so then he's doing something different. He establishes a covenant. Now this is the first of many covenants we'll see in the Bible that um, are. And I'm going to just pause here to find something because it's really important to understand. When you understand covenants, you really understand the Bible and understand that there are different types of covenants, different people involved, and they all help tell the story of this greater covenant that's associated with Jesus uh, a little bit later on, which I'll which I'll come to. You. But but a covenant, historically, and this is partly my definition, I use some words here, but I'll just give McKim uh, most credit because it's mostly from him. But a covenant basically defined, and this is biblical covenant, but also just of the day when this was being written, there are covenants between people that would have looked a certain way that would have kind of informed how people would have understand God saying, I'm covenanting with you. And so a covenant basically is, not just biblically, but historically, contextually, a relational term of agreement between two parties in which mutual responsibilities and obligations may be enacted. And so it's a relational term of agreement between two parties, many times between a greater party like a king and a lesser party like a servant or a vassal. And so the the covenant then is usually mediated by something or stipulated by something, whether expectations for both parties, like the king saying, we're good as long as you do this or stay away from this. Or I'll protect you as long as you do this for me. That might be a more common way a covenant was enacted during the day. A stronger party saying, I'll provide protection as long as you do this for me. And this is the stipulations of that agreement. And we're good relationally. We're kind of, you know, there's a kind of a symbiotic thing there. And, and we're good as long as we're upholding our ends of the bargain. It's a common covenant uh, Of the way it worked of of the day, sometimes in the Bible, but not here. And that's what makes this covenant, which we call the Noahic covenants uh, theologically, the covenant associated with Noah, so interesting is that it breaks some of those rules. There aren't really any stipulations on Noah's sides of things, right? Is anything asked of Noah? Nothing. The the covenant's basically God saying, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, And this is what it means. I'm never going to flood the earth again, period. End of covenant. Let's go our own ways. Is that interesting? Noah's not asked to do or to bring anything. He calls it, God calls it my covenant, something he's obviously the active party here, something he's bringing to bless Noah and his sons and his offspring, which, if you tie things back genealogically, that includes you and me in this room right now. The blessing for us as well and all in all of life it's actually a covenant with the earth to to never bring a storm that ends up being a worldwide flood to the world ever ever again and the sign of the covenant too is an expression of grace it's the sign of the covenant is a rainbow or this, the same word here which peter was reading from a kids bible earlier that makes this connection linguistically for us which is helpful the same word used for a warrior's bow in the old testament so and we, see a, we see a rainbow in the sky, which kind of looks like an archer's bow, essentially, but um, the idea is, biblically here, that we're, when we see a rainbow, we see an image of a warrior hang up his bow on the wall, like on a nail on the wall, because there's no more battle. It's a time of peace. It's like a retired archer or something, like hanging a bow on the wall uh, you know, from its more rigid side, and uh, we see an image of that in the skies after Um, a more chaotic, sometimes very catastrophic storm. So the war is over. In this case, going back to Noah, the war is between God and people, right? The flood is over. Right when they're seen after the storm ends is an image of this bow in the sky. So what what it symbolizes is an era of peace. Peace, peace, peace between God and man. God promising this era now of peace and covenanting with Noah to to that end. And the image of that is a rainbow, a hung up bow on the wall because there's no more reason to, to fight. It's incredibly good news. So the bow then, the rainbow is this intermediary symbol. Not just like a, a stipulation here. This isn't like a thing in between God and Noah and his offspring. It's a sign of what it means. It, it symbolizes uh, something. When I see it, I'll remember my covenant with you. It's, it's, and we can do that too. When we see the rainbow, we, we should think peace we see the bow we should think that we have peace with God now through our Lord Jesus Christ if you fast forward in the story but even here no more flood so it started to rain again and you can probably imagine maybe two weeks later started to rain again and Noah thought oh no no ark this time right naturally you probably would have thought that is it going to happen again and they're looking they saw the bow they remembered God's words at least and they remembered no no more flood God's promising a relent he's promising peace and grace between us and and him but the idea of remembering here, the idea of when I see it, uh, as you see here on the bottom, it's the same language used in Exodus 12, which is the next book in the Bible. Later in the story, when Israel is identified, they're more of a, a national entity at this time, and they're imprisoned in Egypt, and they're seeking to escape, and God's going to bring them out. The last plague God brings through Moses upon the land is this a plague of the firstborn, and God says it will, the judgment will befall you and your households as well, unless... You slay a lamb, take its blood, paint it over your doors. Then it says, when I see the blood, this is the sign, it's the same thing as the rainbow. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So it's a wrath-deterring symbol. Just like like the rainbow, they're both images of peace, they're images of saying, whether it's in real time or after the fact or even before the fact. It's a sign of how God's covenanting with people and saying, this is how I'm going to say, this is how I'm going to work here. Judgment's coming, but I'm making a way out. Judgment's coming, but I'm making a way of escape. And here's a sign of that little mini covenant that we're making right here. And so Noah's got one. Later in the story, uh, Israel gets this kind of mini one as well before they leave an exodus out of, um, of Egypt. But but they're both related, and they're symbols of wrath deterrence in the Old in the Old Testament, something God sees and remembers. Uh, and this is cryptic, right? At this point, it, it it should be kind of, there should be more that question of why, and why now, and why a rainbow in a lamb's blood? It seems very random and inexplicable. Um, but what I want to help you guys, and you guys have been here for a while, you've seen this, I want to help you guys continue to see, or see for the first time, and I mentioned this before, how... There are confusing things in the Bible that that don't make sense. And some things we'll never answer. Other things, though, and this is true for a lot of the things that are confusing, later find clarity. Uh, Jesus himself says in the New Testament that that I interpret the old. I am the key to unlock meaning. So he's like that, that fresh wind that blows from the east and just drives away the fog in the morning. And all of a sudden we can see down the road, like, oh, that's what that meant. I thought that was a bridge, but... But now that, that the fog's blown away, I can, I can see clearly. And understand for sure that's what's, in, that's what's there. And I can, I can walk to it. So, so the, answer really, the, the answer really is always Jesus. And we kind of joke about that, but it, it's actually, it's a, it's a cliche joke because it's true. <laughs> the answer really always is Christ. And if that's the, if that's the case, then, and if we're, we had these confusing images of rainbow and Passover, Passover lamb in mind, it, it would make sense later then uh, if, if jesus would clarify what and kind of fulfill what these things mean it's exactly and it's exactly what we see so it's no surprise for us as readers then coming later in the story seeing that both rainbows and passover lamb imagery are used in reference to jesus specifically he is first of all the the ultimate passover lamb in 1 corinthians 5 for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed He's the ultimate way, God. His blood this time, God looks at that. If we paint it over our life through faith, we will survive the coming storm. His wrath will pass over, hence the word, pass over us and we'll be saved. But God makes that, that means, not us. He's also the ultimate rainbow, you could say, essentially, uh, because at the end of the book, the story, the last book of the Bible, John, the apostle, gets a vision of heaven. He sees God and, and Jesus on the throne. And he says, he who sat there, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So it's one thing we'll likely see forever when Jesus returns is a, a hint of a rainbow around his presence because he symbolizes Christ, peace. He's the ultimate ceasefire between God and man because he's died for our sins and there's no more thing for God to judge. He's the ultimate hanging up of the bow The ultimate Romans 5.1 saying there's no more war between you and God now. There's peace between you and God in Christ Jesus. You can have that. We're justified, made righteous before him. It would make sense then if Genesis 8 and 9 is connected with Jesus that we'd see a a hint of a rainbow around his throne forever and ever and ever, at least here apocalyptically and symbolically. So in John's vision we have that uh, as well, that he has, Jesus has, ultimately made a way of escape from judgment, like the Passover lamb and like the rainbow symbolized God saying, that's it, I'm bringing an air of peace. Jesus completes that. So, so the signs then aren't really anything personal to us, right, to, to human beings. The signs aren't about us or our works, but God's grace alone. In other words, um, you know, human beings literally aren't rainbows or Passover lambs or arks, right? I don't look at Chris Thompson and say, Chris, you are a rainbow, my friend. Or you are an ark. <laughs> so, you are a stalwart, but you're not an, you're not an ark. So, uh, we don't say that, right? They're outside of us. Are rainbows ever inside of you? And I'm not talking poetically here. I mean, like, are they ever inside? They're not, right? We look outside of us. They're, they're over there. The Passover lamb for Israel in the Old Testament would have been outside of us. They would have seen it. It would have been... Here they are, and here's the blood over the door. It's a few feet away. It's, it's not in us. It's not about us. The signs, the symbols that interpret what the covenants are about are not about us. In the same way, it just isn't about us. It's not about what we do, what our works are, but God is graciously saying, here, this is what I'm going to covenant with you with. This is the These are the stipulations. I'm going to save you. Any questions? That's the covenant back in... Both these stories, but back to Genesis 8 9. Here's the covenant. I'm going to save you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to relent my anger, period. Any questions? I love you. And it's not based on your morality. Your and my intentions of the heart are evil from youth. Right? Going back to that, we can't say it's because of our inherent goodness. God made that very clear. So it must be for a different reason. The only thing that makes sense is God must really love us. That's the only thing that makes sense. He must really, really love us. He must be incredibly patient. He must really want to make a way out from the flood, a way out from Egyptian slavery, a way out from our sins. He must really want to do that. He must really want to forgive. It's the only thing that that makes sense. He here is just making promises. Noah doesn't speak at all. You notice that? Noah keeps his mouth shut completely. There's nothing to say. There's no, oh, okay, God, that's great. Can I do this for you? nothing. God just promising, pouring out grace upon grace upon grace. Like, like a, you know, I, I say this, well, I, I think I say this. <laughs> I'm doing some premarital right now for some people, so I might, have, I might be uh, forgetting, but I try to say this to all the, the couples I do premarital with, my wife and I, and, and like in a wedding ceremony as well. It's kind of like a husband and wife, covenanting, it's a covenant. Uh, This is the thing that I say. It's really a covenant. You're covenanting to love each other for life, right? It's a a marriage covenant that a man and a woman make together. And so it's kind of like that going on. There's a lot of marriage imagery here in the sense that when you go to a wedding, if you hear vows, when people give vows to each other, do they make those conditional ever? Is there ever conditionality to a vow? Like, do, do we say, well, I'll love you when you're sick unless you're too sick? You know, no, I'll, I'll love you, you know, in, for when we're wealthy or when we're poor, but unless we're too poor, it, that, those are terrible vows. Where's the love in that, right? And so if, if, I know some of you are in the process of getting married, you're engaged, you're, you want to get married someday, that's great. Um, don't write vows with conditions. And, and usually it's natural not to, but I've heard about these, not one's marriages I've done. Not, I'm not passively aggressively alluding to some of you, but I've heard of this. People like literally, conditionally covenanting and saying, you know, I'll love you, but only if you come this far. And I'm like, oh my gosh, so romantic, (laughs) you know, like what? What makes vows powerful, what makes a wedding powerful is unconditional love, love that lasts forever. Love that says, it's not based on what you do for me, it's based completely on me saying, I promise to never leave you or forsake you, period. That's what makes love so beautiful and marriage so beautiful. Genesis 8 and 9 is basically a wedding. It's basically God vowing, promising to never, ever, ever leave us and to love us and to relent uh, his, his anger, which points ahead to, to his son. And that's why we know it's doing that. It's a covenant that paves the way for the New Testament, the greater covenant. So look ahead here um, in Genesis 9 11, God God's saying, this is my covenant, I'll never destroy the earth by a flood. But later on, Jesus makes a related covenant by grace, but it's a much greater one. He says, This is my body before his death, he dies on a cross, given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He gets very clear about what his death's going to do. It's going to forgive sins. It's a New Testament or covenant or a way of God relating with people. I am going to do this. And what's glorious about it, kind of Allah, Genesis 8 to 9 is he never asked the disciples here to do anything, right? Do they talk? Not at all. Just like Noah, they keep their mouths shut and they receive from the God of the universe, saying, I've got this. They see salvation outside of themselves like a rainbow in the sky, like blood over a door. as a sign of the covenant as Jesus hanging on a cross for our sins. And they rest. They put faith and trust in, in him alone for their salvation. And so what Christ is really saying then here, and this is my words, but by this covenant, using the words of Genesis 9, he's promising, I will never destroy a believing sinner in hell, ever. I will never send a flood again is like saying to a Christian, I will never destroy a believing sinner in hell. If you believe in him, he has covenanted with you and sworn by himself never to do that to you. He loves you. But that's the covenant. Believe in my son. Allow me to save. Take refuge in the ark of grace. The storm is coming. Paint paint my son's blood over the doorposts of your heart and believe and and I'll pass over. He's everything. He's the agent of the covenant, the enactor. He's the blessings. He's he's everything. So one final question here before we wrap up that we have to address is, because we looked at the first part of this, is what's up with the tit-for-tat aspect here, right, of, of the covenant or of the way that God works in the first part? Not in the covenant, but before the covenant. Uh, so you might be asking that, well, if it's all about grace, why does God say if you murder, you will be murdered? That's not grace, right? That might make sense on kind of a justice level, but that's not grace. So those are juxtaposed here, right? They're, they're set, they're contrasted intentionally. So what do we do with that? The answer is, a short answer, that's all we have time for today, but... Um, I hope it's sufficient, is that the conditional uh, retributive commandment precedes the Noahic covenants of grace. They're they're different. That commandment of, if you murdered, you will, the tit-for-tat idea, that precedes and is different from the covenants of grace. Like later in the story, the Old Testament of law precedes the New Testament of of grace. And so, uh, commandments then that require, as we're seeing here, but... Also, other commandments that require perfect human obedience tend to make things worse. So, what's needed is an unconditional, different from that commandment or covenant of, of works, covenant of grace to right all wrongs and to save weak and weary sinners. And so, sometimes in the Bible, we see God giving laws in the, in the context of a covenant that He might later replace them with, with Himself. This is what God does in the, in the Old Testament, like with the Ten Commandments, for example, but there are other moral laws. God does covenant times with Israel conditionally. God does say, if you don't keep these Ten Commandments perfectly, I will leave you forever. I, I, will, I will abandon you. I will exile you afresh from my presence indefinitely. God does say that repeatedly in the Old, passing away, not here anymore, Testament. But that's the key. There are different covenants of the Bible that aren't all the same. This Noah's covenant points ahead to Jesus, but that Old Testament full of the Ten Commandments and morality simply does not. It's it's built on condition. So it's different. This is why in the New Testament, Jesus says um, in Matthew 5, he says, You have heard it said uh, that uh, an eye, this is quoting the Old Testament, you have heard that it was said, speaking to Jewish people, in your Old Testament, Old Covenant, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But look what he says, but contrast, this is what I'm saying, it's different. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus is changing the rules, you guys. He's not keeping with the Old Testament command. Things are different with him. Isn't that a glorious truth? So, so let, let me just be really clear. If, if you believe in Jesus today for the first if you are right now, if you're coming to that place, if you're a Christian, you are not under a covenant with God that's eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's in the Bible as a place holding, condemning, not working, so gotta look elsewhere for salvation type element in the story. And Jesus is that other element. It's a new, different than the Old Covenant. That says new for a reason. Jesus is not an extension of the Old Testament. He fulfills it, but he establishes something distinct and new. So by turning the cheek, it it, it resembles peace. It resembles a a non-retributive, a a uh, non-condemning, a non-tit-for-tat, a non-if-you-murder-you-will-be-murdered type way of connecting with God. Do you believe that? Some of you are Christians, but you don't. Let the scriptures free you unto a new way of connecting with God that's simply based on his blood, his son's blood, and not based on what you do. This is good news for murderers. It's good news for prideful people, for liars. I mean, if people think they're good people, I guess, if you think you're a really good person, the tit for tat's kind of a good thing because you think, well, if I'm a great person, God's going to give me more. Or it's kind of the... Uh, the, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel idea, if you know what that is, it's if, if God will give me what I'm, what I'm due, if I give more to the church financially, if I live a good life, God will bless me. Tit for tat. Great idea, unless you're horribly sinful. <laughs> it's a terrible theology, and it's terribly just illogical. Uh, no good comes to us in, in that, with that type of mindset. God gives unfairly to sinners. If if we're about grace, we have to be about unfairness. Grace is not fair. It's unfair. It's qualitatively unfair because we do nothing to deserve it. Absolutely nothing. We are loved. Noah here in the story, it's unfair that he's blessed. It's unfair that he's given food more than just plants. It's unfair that he gets hamburgers for the first time. It's unfair that he's allowed to have children. It's unfair that he's covenanted with. It's unfair that God says no more floods. Why? Based on what? Why shouldn't he? Love, love, love. What, what covenant do you want to be in with God? And you don't, we don't really have a choice. It's only what God says, but let's just say it was too up to our choice. What would you want? Tit for tat? How you live will be returned upon you? Conditionality? Or do you want the, the, the covenant, the new one that Jesus gives, which is more embodied by turning of the cheek? By Jesus dying for our sins, by his blood, by him saying it's all about me. I'm going to save you today. It's all about me. The sign is me on a cross, which is objective to you, outside of you, like a rainbow in the sky, like blood over a door. It's outside of you. So look to me to be saved. Do not look in here. We are not rainbows. We are not arks. We are not Passover lambs. That's Jesus. He's all those things. Believe, he says. Believe, 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 believe. Let him take the brunt for you and be saved. So three quick things here to wrap up with. Um, I kind of talked about this. But first is just a passing thing. This is important though. Uh, never look at rainbows the same way again. We might see one today if the sun comes out. They, they belong to God, rainbows do, and they're meant to tell you and I something about the gospel. When you see a bow in the sky, think, God has made peace with me through his own shed blood. He has hung up his bow on the wall. There's no more war because of what Jesus has done. There's there's that's it. And he said it's finished. There's no more fight. We're, we're connected now again, afresh with God. Second, there's something here about respecting all life, being kind to animals, and especially to human beings. Uh, that I think continues on into the, the New Testament era it's because, and the Christians do this because we've been respected essentially, our life has, by God. God has died for us, been gentle with us and so we sort of pay that forward to the animal kingdom and especially the human beings as we love them more than ourselves. But, so do that, but know at the same time that ultimately your, your and my relationship with God is not dependent on how well you do it. Remember, God's saying this to a Murderer. If you've ever, ever murdered someone, if you murder someone someday, this is how big it gets. This is how much the cross bought, how Jesus bought, us, bought with his blood. The point is, that if you come to Christ, that will not be returned upon you. So, so it doesn't matter what you and I have done. Grace, grace, grace. Not a past to just live like hell. It's to say our relationship, our covenant now we have with God is not based on what we do, but on what the Lord does for us through Jesus. And so do that. So believe that, rest underneath the ultimate covenants of Noah. Here, number three, uh, rest underneath the ultimate covenants of Noah where God's wrath and judgment finally cease. John 3.17, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved, might be saved through him. Think later in John 3.36, he says, if, if someone does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. So the, the way out from the coming storm, the way out from the punishment, the judgment, the way out from hell, is uh, is the Son. He's the ultimate ark. Uh, again, like last week, get on the ark of Christ and believe by faith and rejoice and be th- and actually hear yourself thank and worship Him this week. And whenever we say that, we close a lot of our sermons here at Hiawatha with just those simple calls to faith for Christians and non-Christians alike. And when we say that, you know, it, it, and I know the thought is, I have this thought. If the thought is for you, well, I've done that. You and I are getting it wrong. I'm guessing a lot of you maybe have gone months, maybe longer, without hearing yourself say, God, thank you. Just get out. When we, say, we close our sermons like this, take time out of your week to read the Bible with somebody and yourself. Read about his promises and grace. If you, this is how we apply belief with the church, hearing yourself thank him, worship, like Noah did. If grace impacts us, we'll, we'll want to worship. Uh, do that alone with people, with your church. These are the kind of things that become these rhythms for us as, as Christians that we need to be intentional with. They don't just happen. So anyway, lots more to say about that, but let's close with this final song here in a prayer. God, thank you for uh, your grace in the gospel of Noah, really. Uh, thank you for dying for our sins, for being the ultimate expression of the, the peace symbol of a rainbow in a lamb's shed blood. Thank you for yourself saying, when I see it, I will pass over. When I see it, I will remember that I relent. When I see it, from this vantage point in the biblical story, I look ahead uh, to my son who will ultimately embody what those symbols point uh, to and, and demonstrate peace with sinners through a substitute's shed blood. I thank you that it's by grace we're saved. Help us to believe and stop performing, uh, to shut our mouths before the new covenant, and to receive. Uh, It's not about us adding to it, but about us receiving it. So may we practically, practically do that now and with our lives this week. In Christ's name, uh, for his honor and glory and fame, we pray. Amen.